you notice like only like seven or eight people applauded for you there? That was a little awkward. Yeah. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Let me be the third person to say how intrepid you are being here this morning. Of course, it didn't look that bad. By time service time came, it was actually sunny out and everything was good. It's a little more tense earlier this morning when we were trying to make this decision. And I uh, get on, just so you know how we make this decision, we, we make sure Barry Transit is running. We make sure plows are out. And then I text my, my friends at Conexus, Mapleview, and, and Emmanuel. And if they're open, there's no way we're not open. So, um, so uh, yeah, I was texting with the lead pastors of each of those churches this morning, and everybody was a go. Everybody was like, yeah, we're having a service. We're going. We're having a service. We're not sure who's going to show up, but we'll be there. And uh, so grateful uh, for that. So I thought I'd start out this morning by talking about socks. <laughs> oh, oh, no, wait, that was last week, right? Sorry. Pastor Rogers, even in the room, did he make it today? Yeah. Yeah. I know, I saw him. I just, I'm just yanking his chain. All right, well, good to see you. Let's get into God's word here. And uh, we have a bit of, uh, like, not into any series stuff right now. In, in last week's, two Fridays ago, the uh, e-bulletin, I kind of let you know what, it, what it's looking like in terms of the preaching over the next... Uh, six, seven, eight weeks, and uh, we won't get back into series preaching till the end of February, uh, but I've uh, got this kind of one-off start the year message, and, um, and then Dio Odou, one of our uh, members who, um, he and his wife operate an orphanage in Ibadan, Nigeria, um, uh, one of our partners, our global partners, um, he'll be here preaching next Sunday, and then um, I'm going to be on for two, but they're going to be, one's going to be like a special communion service. So think about that on the 26th of January, just like communion in the word, looking at communion and then crafting the whole service around that. And so uh, that should be a really special Sunday. And then I'm going to do on February 2nd, I'm going to do a state of the union or state of the church, a state of the church. I'll let Trump do the state of the union, um, state of the church address. And we're going to talk about the church and where we're at in our, at this point in our history and what we have coming up. Uh, in the coming year and years, and uh, so that'll be on February the 2nd, and, um, and then uh, Jordan Chorus is going to take two Sundays, and then we'll get back into uh, our study in the book of, what's the long series we're doing this year? Book of Acts? No, not Luke, we're done that one. Who said that? Tyler, thank you. Um, we'll be back into the book of Acts at the end of February. Sound good? All right. All right, so let's, uh, let's start out in God's Word here, and we're going to be in three different passages, but let me, uh, does anyone here know what's going to happen this year? Anybody have any idea? Yeah, me either. No idea. Um, we're just days into this new year, and uh, going, I'm, I'm going into it just like you, and this is a key phrase, I'm going into it not knowing, uh, not knowing what's going to happen to me or my family or this church or our community or our country or even in this world. And it's possible when we think about this not knowing what's going to happen, even not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, for some of us, not everyone, but for some of us, that uncertainty about the future can really kind of become paralyzing. And as Christians, there's a much better way for us. And what I want to do in this message is relate three different accounts of believers who were facing a situation not knowing how it was going to turn out for them. But they did so in a way that pointed their undying confidence in God. And the hope is that each one of us is going to be able to affirm this statement. And it's in your notes as well. Poof, there it is. <clears throat> Jesus is what I need as I enter a new year, not knowing what will happen to me. Do you believe that? Jesus is what I need 
In fact, let's say that statement together in, in faith, and then we're going to work through it. And by the end, we'll say it again, and we'll see if we believe this, okay? Let's say it. Jesus. That's right. All right, so let's do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of structure this message a little differently. Your outline is in your notes there. You're ready to go. But let's look at the three passages. Let me do a little synopsis of each one of these accounts from the scriptures, and then we'll get into the outline. So the three believers I want to talk to you about, the first of them is uh, Abraham. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, this isn't the story of Abraham. Of course, that's in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Hebrews, the preacher in Hebrews 11, he's uh, telling us all about faith and all these different heroes of the faith. And Abraham is one of them. And here's what he says in Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Now, he was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, uh, down toward the bottom of the, what's called the Fertile Crescent at the, in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, that area. And, and God calls Abraham. This is all happening 2,000 years before Christ, or 4,000 years ago for us. Abraham is living there, and he gets this call of God to go and live in this other place. But God doesn't tell him exactly where he's going. He says, I want you to go live in this promised land I'm going to tell you about. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go, but not knowing where exactly the location is. You know, in 2001, it's been almost 19 years. In fact, almost, we're in our 20th year of finding out that there was an opportunity to plant a church here in Barrie. And Cheryl and I were down in St. Thomas, south of London. <clears throat> I was pastoring down there. We had a young family at the time, and uh, we got this phone call from some folks in Chicago that said, would you like to go to Barrie and plant a church? And the cool thing about the call was they told us what city they wanted us to go and plant a church in. It wasn't like there was just a call. We want you to go plant a church. Why don't you go ahead and, and, and pack up the moving van and just start driving? And eventually we'll tell you where you're going to plant the church. No, we actually had a destination. We had never actually been in Barrie. We had driven through Barrie like everyone else on their way to Muskoka. We had never been here, but we knew where it was. We could open a map. We could point the moving truck in the right direction. But Abraham didn't have that advantage. He's in Ur. God says, pack up the moving van, start driving. And, and Abraham started driving north. And he went out. Here it is. Look again to the text. And he went out. Highlight this phrase. Not knowing where he was going. And the only way you do something like that is by faith. And that's what the preacher says next in Hebrews 11. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now he mentions like the next generation and the next generation, his son and his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. So it wasn't just that the destination was unknown. Once they got there to this promised land, once they got there, the whole enterprise of what they were doing required faith because the whole thing was kind of a situation of not knowing. In other words, generation Abraham, generation Isaac, generation Jacob are all still kind of living in this temporary situation in this promised land. Things didn't just pan out in a matter of months and years. It took generations for this dream of the promised land to really be realized. He did it all 
They did it all, generation after generation, not knowing how God was going to work the whole thing out. And they did it because of faith. In fact, the last line here is very telling. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And he's not talking about an earthly city. He's not talking about Jerusalem. He's looking beyond this life. With all of its unknowns, all of us know about this. He's looking beyond this life with all of its unknowns into, the, into eternity on the basis of the promise of God. Okay, that's Abraham. We got Abraham's story kind of locked down. We're going to mine some things out of that as we work through the outline. Second story is Paul, the Apostle Paul. And it's really, I want to take us to a scene in Acts chapter 20. And it's a very dramatic and, and emotional scene in this chapter, and you can tell because it's close to the end of the book of Acts, Paul actually made three missionary, what are called missionary journeys, where he left his sending church in Antioch, and he went off and he went to churches in uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece, and, and he went to all these different cities, and he preached the gospel, and, and he planted churches and established leaders in all of these different cities. Well, in Acts chapter 20, he's finishing that third journey. And he's sailing along the coast of uh, Macedonia and then down along the coast of Asia Minor, what is today modern day uh, Greece. And as he's sailing by, he comes past the city of Ephesus and then he docks. The ship comes in at a city called Miletus, which is in the same neighborhood as Ephesus. And he calls while he's there, he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus kind of texts them. They had a text group and they texted it. And he said, would you meet me on the docks at Miletus? And the elders came from Ephesus and they met him there in Miletus. And he wants them to come to him because he needs to tell them that he's made the decision and he's already bought the ticket and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to take the ship all the way to the capital city of Israel. And he's about to leave, but he cares so much for them. And he had spent it good portions of two missionary journeys and some very eventful things had happened in Ephesus, but he had spent a lot of time with the folks in Ephesus and he loved them deeply and he'd written letters to their pastor, Timothy, and trained him and mentored him and equipped him for that work. He loved this church so much and he wanted to say goodbye. And it's so emotionally charged because everyone knows that for Paul to leave Miletus, to get on that ship and to head Jerusalem was to go right into ground zero of persecution. That Paul certainly faced opposition and persecution in all the other cities he went to. But to go to Jerusalem right into the teeth of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders would be to put his life completely at risk. Beyond what would happen in any other place. It, it was not just risky for him to go to Jerusalem. Listen, everyone knew it was fatal. And he said to them, in chapter 20, verse 22, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. And you could underline this, not knowing, there it is again, not knowing what will happen to me there. And Acts 20 actually goes on to say, I'll let you read that whole section for yourself, but they got on their knees, they prayed, they were weeping, they were hugging each other because they were very, very sure they would never see each other again on this side of eternity. But the not knowing, this is what's interesting to me, the not knowing didn't keep him from going. The risk didn't keep him from going. The uncertainty of it did not keep him from going. And again, that's Paul's little 
Little episode from Paul's life. We're going to come back to it. The third person, we've talked about Abraham, Paul, and now Joab. Now, Joab is one of the top generals in King David's army, and he was going out against the nation of Ammon. If you know the geography at all, it's, it's kind of on the same latitude as Jerusalem, but it's, it's east of Jerusalem, and it's on the other side of the Jordan River in, in, modern day, in, in the modern-day country of Jordan. And he was going out, Joab was going out at, at King David's orders against the nation of Ammon, and the, the Ammonites, seeing that this powerful army was now coming against them and they were likely to become a vassal state of Israel under King David, they, um, they uh, sent word, they sh- shot an email off to the Syrians and they said to the Syrians off in the north, they said, would you come and help us? We'll pay cash. And the Syrians, of course, always willing to you know, uh, do something for a buck. They sent some people down, sent the wiring information for the money. And the Syrians now had the Israeli, uh, the Israeli army that was coming against the Ammonites, now had them surrounded. And so in, in the text, um, as this army is coming down, here's what happens. This is First Chronicles 19 now, 10 through 13. Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and the rear. He's surrounded. You don't need to be a military person to know Surrounded is bad, okay? You now are fighting a war on two sides. And so what he did, text tells us, he chose some of his best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians to turn them toward the rear. The rest of the men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites to the south. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you should help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Then he says, just fire them up now, be strong. Let us use the strength of our people and for the cities of our God. And then highlight this line. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Now we don't precisely have the phrase not knowing here, but isn't that an admission? Isn't it kind of like embedded in the idea and implied? He says, may the Lord do what seems good to him because we're going in not knowing how this battle is going to turn out but completely surrender to whatever God decides for us. All right, that's the Joab story. So you got the three stories locked in? Everybody? Got the three stories locked in? All right. You're here, show up. Okay, here we go. Abraham, Paul, and Joab, each of them was going through life not knowing what would happen to them, but they had God. And again, our affirmation is, let me remind you of this, Jesus is what I need as I enter a new year, not knowing what will happen to me? All right, ready for the outline? Here we go. The problem. The problem is I don't know what's going to happen to me. Doesn't that seem like a problem to you? And, and it can hinder our ability to make decisions. But even as I say that, I need us to understand that there's a fake problem here and there's a real problem with not knowing and us saying this. The fake problem, in fact, is that I don't know what's going to happen. That's a fake problem. Just as I stated it here, it's not the real problem. It's fake because it isn't really a problem for us. It just happens to be the reality that every single human being lives with. It's the reality that we all face of not being able to predict the future. Of having to live. We live down here on a timeline. And when you live on a timeline where time and life is linear, we know what's happened in the past. We're experiencing what's happening in the present. But we don't have an idea of what's going to happen in the next minute. 
It's the lot of every human being. Thus, because it's the lot of every human being, it does not get categorized as a problem. It's just life. It's life for all of us. The real problem now, that's the fake problem. The real problem of not knowing is one of attitude and acceptance. It's the the battle that we rage in our minds and in our hearts. We see not knowing as a problem, which it isn't, and we fall into some patterns of behavior that are unhealthy and ungodly. The problem is not knowing. The problem is our response to not knowing. Our problem is not that we don't know what's going to happen, but that we don't like that we don't know what's going to happen. And when that's true of us, we can fall into some very bad patterns of behavior. So let's, um, let's expose some of these. Seven, seven wrong responses to not knowing what's going to happen to me. Ready for these? We're not going to do any of these this year, are we? We're not going to do any of these this year, are we? No, none of these. All right, number one, um, seven wrong responses. Number one is um, angry with God. I'm just angry with God because of how things are, are playing out or the fact that I don't know or that life is such a mystery or I don't know what decision to make and why won't God tell me and I keep praying and why isn't he answering? I deserve more than this. Doesn't he know how faithful I am? Just angry with God. Never a good idea. Number two, envious of others. Why do they get a free ride? Why is life easier for them? Why can't I have what they have? Why can't I go on that vacation or live in that neighborhood or drive that car or have those friends or do what they do or have their health? Why can't I trade my kids for their kids? (laughs) I did not say that one. Number three, anxious and fearful. I get that. I'm so afraid of making this decision. What about this one? I could make A, B, or C. Which one should I make? I'm so afraid if I choose this one that this will go this way and it won't be a good decision for me and lots of people will get hurt or I might lose some money or a friend might be lost. I'm so anxious, so fearful of what's coming. Fourth, I put gripped by grief over past losses. You know, I look at what happened in 2019 or what happened in 2018 or I look at what happened in the last five years and so much was lost and we could have been so much further ahead and we're not. And I'm still mourning that. I don't know if I could take any more in this new year. Number five, filled with regret over past decisions. It wasn't just circumstances that came my way. I actually decided to do this and it turned out very poorly. And what if I make another bad decision this year? What if I go down the wrong road? What if I don't have all the information? I'm filled with regret. Or number six, I'm just consumed with self. I I'm looking at, you know what I've decided for this year? 2020 is the year of looking out for number one. And I'm going to give less and I'm going to pour myself less into others and I'm going to focus on me. It's, it's 2020 is me time. Heard that before? That's not healthy. It's not going to go anywhere good. Number seven, finally take matters into my own hands and shut God out. And I can tell you that that's always a bad idea. 
And if we can ditch all of these unhealthy, ungodly responses, then we will face the not knowing in a whole different way this year. And we will see, instead of these obstacles and hindrances to our walk with Christ, we will see in the, listen, by the end of this message, we will see in the mystery of not knowing an incredible opportunity to know our God better. And that's what this is about. So if we overcome the problem, we will experience instead the power of not knowing. There's power in not knowing. Because I do know someone who does know. What's his name again? He knows. He knows everything. He's sovereign and in control of all matters of history in my life. And he's ready to walk through this year with you and with me through all of the ups and downs that will inevitably come, none of us is promised a smooth ride. And as we look at Abraham and Paul and Joab, they all point us to this guarantee that Jesus is going to be with us through it all. So let's look at these, these five aspects of the power of God in our lives. The first one is, Jesus helps me endure. Jesus helps. You're going to need endurance this year. You're going to need it because trials are inevitable. You could jot down John chapter 16 verse 33. Or you could jot down James chapter 1 verse 2. Both of them tell us, listen, life on earth is filled with trouble and trials and temptations. It is universal. Everyone experiences them. And for those of us who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, here's what we need to hear. Every, every trial and every difficulty we face is a referendum on the legitimacy of our faith. Let me say that again. Every trial and every difficulty we face is a referendum on the legitimacy of our faith. Are we truly believers the way people can tell is not very often by the things that we say, but by the manner of our life. And if you're a Christian, I mean a real one. Not Christian by name, not Christian by heritage, not Christian because you say so. Okay, if you're a real Christian, endurance is a defining characteristic of who you claim to be. It's the one, we hear in the scriptures, it's the one who perseveres to the end that saves. Perseverance, endurance. Are you standing there at the end? That's how you know you're saved. And some of you have this, and some of you it's more of a struggle to endure every trial and every difficulty. I see endurance in some, I see defeatism in others. One example I, I thought of is um, in the area of marriage. And I would say that um, no other human relationship requires more endurance, perseverance, stick to than our marriage relationship. It's so important, in fact, it's um, the only relationship, I believe, where we actually started out with a covenant to not quit. That's how important it is. We're actually going to establish it as a covenant. We're actually going to say words to each other that say, not quitting. 
better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health. Remember all those words? So I thought about marriage. I know marriages in this building, in this room right now, that were one word, one more word away from divorce. If one or the other had just said, I'm done, I'm out, it would have been over. But where both said, you know what? We're going to press in, we're going to endure, we're going to persevere through this, we're going to do the work, we're going to get the counseling, we're going to own our parts. And now, they have the kind of marriage everyone wants. Years later, why? One reason, they didn't quit. They endured through it. And of course, then I've seen marriages where the smallest thing we talk in, in counseling about the thin edge of the wedge. And when the marriage problem comes to us, it just seems so big and they're so spread apart. And when you start unpacking it and going back through the years, all the way back to the very beginning, what you usually discover is there's one little thing that started it all. And it just became so big because it was never attended to. And there's no desire and no perseverance and no endurance and no reason why anyone would work at it any longer. The smallest thing becomes so big and no grace is offered. No forgiveness given and the marriage dissolves leaving generational consequences. So I've seen both endurance and I've seen capitulation. And you know, as Paul was preparing to set sail, he knew something of what awaited him. And he said so to the elders. He said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what awaits me there. But then he goes on to say in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Every city I've gone to, Paul says, it's been the same threat. People are going to hate me. People are going to speak evil against me. People are going to beat me. I'm going to get thrown in prison. And I'm going to be under threat of death. In every city I go to, Jerusalem is no different. So the elders weren't wrong to weep over him. The only reason why anyone does this and endures and does what Jesus puts in front of them is because they are, as Paul said he was, constrained by the Spirit. That word constrained literally means I am bound to God. I'm tied to him. So I can't, as a Christian, I can't not do the things that he tells me to do. When the Holy Spirit constrains you, constrains you, you are captive to his will. And in that scenario, now think about the implications of this now over the next year, okay? In that scenario, how the future rolls out matters very little. If you are constrained by the Holy Spirit, if you are bound to God, it literally does not matter what happens in 2020. Obedience is what matters. And so are you so close to Jesus, so constrained by the Spirit, that you can endure anything that comes your way this year? That's the question. All right, ready for a second one? 
Jesus gives me purpose. Now, what we see in Joab, let's talk about Joab now. That was Paul. What we see in Joab is a a general going into battle and doing all the things that generals do as they go into battle. He's assessing his enemy. He's lining up his troops. He's sending out scouts and sentries. He's looking at maps. He's picking the high ground. He's figuring out where to put the different elements in his army. He's forming plans, he's making decisions, he's moving troops, he's on mission with a clear purpose, that's Joab. And it's exactly the same in Paul's case. God had charged him again with preaching the gospel and planting churches. And Paul was very intentional how he did that. You go to the back of most of your Bibles, you're going to see a map of Paul's missionary journeys. And you're going to see how he traveled and where he went. And how he would go out to a series of churches. And then he would loop back and visit those churches again. Why? Because the first time he went there, he was preaching the gospel for the first time. And he was planting seeds and helping them grow and giving them the first little elements of how to be a church. And then he'd go on to the next town and do it again and the next town and do it again and the next town. And then he would go, you know, it's time we go back. And then he would loop back and as he went, he would check on their progress and are they maturing? And now's the time to pick some people to be leaders in the church. And then he'd go back to Antioch and he'd report and he'd regroup and he'd make a new plan. He'd go out and do it again. Paul was very intentional about what he did and very calculated in all of this, including in his decision to go to Jerusalem. It was intentional, it was purposeful, it was missional. And when he says in the passage, I did not shrink back from declaring to you everything that was profitable for you. I preached it all. I was 100% on mission the entire time I was with you. I proclaimed the good news about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Jesus had given him purpose and he was living it out. Abraham, he was on mission to be the father of a great nation that would be God's own people and through whom the savior of the world would come. In each case, God had given each of these men, Joab and and Paul and Abraham, had given them a strong sense of purpose. And I wonder how much, for those who are struggling with, I don't know what's going to happen in this next year. I wonder for, for us who are struggling, if it's a matter of just not knowing what your purpose in life is. Is that the struggle? Not knowing what you're supposed to be doing. What your purpose in life is. And I I get how there can be questions about the micro. If we could talk about purpose in life in terms of micro and macro aspects of that. But the micro aspects, I get how we can be struggling with that. What, What education should I pursue? What school should I go to? What program should I be in? What job should I take or be targeting? Or what city should I live in? Or who should I marry? Like all of these things are micro aspects of our purpose and they're specific to who we are as an individual and how God has has fit us and wired us and made us. But, But the macro sense of purpose for those who are followers of Jesus Christ should be without question. It's the same answer for every one of us. There is no mystery here. It doesn't matter if you're you know, on staff at the church, or you're an elder of this church, or if you're a student, or if you work in a factory, or if you drive Uber, or you're a professional, or you own your own business, it doesn't matter what you do. 
The sense of purpose that you would have as a follower of Jesus Christ in the macro sense is universal. It's for all of us. In fact, this is what it would be. My purpose, every one of us can say this. If you're a follower of Christ, every one of us can say this. My purpose, I'm here to glorify God in whatever I do. My mission is to make more and better followers of Jesus Christ. And I am to love God and love people as I do that. There's not a person in this room who professes faith in Jesus Christ who can't have that as their, as their personal purpose statement. In the macro sense, this belongs to all of us. And we need to settle that issue now if it's not settled. Work out all the fine deals, details, wrestle with the specifics of the micro, but have this much clear in your mind. Because Jesus gives us a sense of purpose. As part of my uh, morning time with the Lord for the past several months and then into this year, I'm using uh, the devotional by uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. How many people know this devotional or have used it? It's, it's phenomenal. And on January 2nd, I read this. And, and this devotional, actually, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do on this Sunday, which is very unusual for me. And it was this devotional on January 2nd that gave me the idea for this message, okay? So I'll give credit to Chambers for that. Um, Here's what he said on January 2nd. Continually examine your attitude toward God to see if you are willing to go out, okay? Be on mission, have your purpose, okay? If you are willing to go out in every area of your life, trusting in God entirely, it is this attitude that keeps you in constant wonder, Because you don't know what God is going to do next. That's where the power is. That I go out in faith. I fulfill my purpose. I'm doing exactly what Jesus told me to do. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I know God's going to show up. And it's going to be powerful. And it's going to be awesome. Well, I want more of that. And hopefully you'll see the power of not knowing the power of not knowing in your own life, that you'll see God at work in awesome ways. And you will if your purpose is aligned with his, if you're not falling into those other patterns, those unhelpful and ungodly patterns of behavior that often grip us when we don't know. All right, Jesus, um, Jesus helps me endure. Jesus gives me purpose. Uh, Jesus grows my faith. So back to Paul again and the scene in Acts chapter 20. It's so emotional. I mean, there's tears, there's hugging. They know they're not going to see each other again. And if Paul were allowing his emotions to dictate his actions, if Paul were allowing his emotions to dictate his actions, would he go to Jerusalem or would he stay in Ephesus? He'd stay. In fact, what's really curious is the sailing route that he takes to get to Miletus passes right by Ephesus. Why didn't he stop there? Why didn't he stop right at the docks in Ephesus and, and, and spend a Sunday and meet with the church and, and, and say a final word, preach a final message and hop on the boat and go to Jerusalem? Why didn't he go there? Because he was too afraid of his own emotions. He was afraid if he saw the church again, his heart would just burst inside and he would stay. Why go to my death when I can have a fruitful and vibrant ministry right here with people I I love and who love me? 
He didn't want to get caught up in an even greater emotional scene that would pull at his heartstrings and might persuade him to change his plans. Paul knew that expressing his emotions was good and right, but allowing them to lead was a problem. We've used this definition of faith for all 18 plus years that we've been at church and it's so powerful and there's really four very distinct elements to our understanding of faith, but one that is particularly relevant to us right here. Faith is believing the word of God, one, acting upon it, two, then here's this one, no matter how I feel, no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. Faith has to transcend our emotions. And when things get tough this year, are they going to get tough this year? For most of us, the answer is yes. Faith is, faith, things are going to get tough and faith is required. But you're going to get, be tempted in the midst of the difficulties and the trials. You're going to be tempted to let your emotions dictate your decisions. And determine right now, On this Sunday, determine right now, that is not going to happen. And the beauty of uncommon community is this. When you feel like you're in a difficult situation and your emotions are running rampant and you feel like you're not going to make a good decision, you get with your trusted counsel, you get with your closest friends, you get with your small group and you say, I'm not seeing this clearly. I'm too emotionally charged to make a decision. I need your prayers. I need your counsel or make the decision for me. And trust yourself to that. This is where we lean on one another and need one another. And I'm so impressed by the resolve of Joab in this when he said that line in verse 13, 1 Chronicles 19, 13, may the Lord do what seems good to him. I mean, that's faith. It's absolute trust in, a God, in God to say that even, even if we're going in this battle, we've set it all up. I got Abishai looking this way and I'm looking this way and we've divided the army up and we're going to face both enemies. But the reality is, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I trust my God so completely and I believe in the cause that we're fighting for. That even if we're defeated in this particular battle, on this battlefield, on this day, even if I die, this is not going to undermine in any way the overall plan of God. We're too quick to believe. When things start to go a little rocky for us, we're too quick to believe that God has abandoned us. One setback and we're like, God, where are you? even a series of setbacks, even a prolonged period of time of trial. And we're like, God, I've been abandoned. Why aren't you hearing my prayer? Why aren't you reversing my situation? But you hear none of that from Joab. If we fail to trust God for the bigger picture, admittedly, we can't see the bigger picture. I admit that. That's why we need faith. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. So even if we fail to trust God for the bigger picture, we forfeit the opportunity to see him do something incredible. 
So I need to trust him for that bigger picture. I can't see it, God, and right now it's super hard, but I'm trusting you that there is a bigger picture and that it is awesome and I trust you and I'm going to be faithful to you. Now, I'm not sure what I say next is something you're ready for, but I want to ask you a question about what your priority is at the outset of this new year. You ready for this? You won't answer because you don't think you are. And I I get that. My desire for 2020. First, that everything would go my way and life would be easy for me. Not one amen. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, I wouldn't mind this. God, make my life better, easier, awesomer. Or... That my faith would grow and my intimacy and knowledge of God would be beyond anything I've ever experienced. Oh. Well, that's okay if Joab wins the battle. If Abraham founds a nation. If Paul survives Jerusalem and Rome. But think about what you're saying amen to. If the priority is that my faith would grow and my intimacy and knowledge of God would be beyond anything I ever experienced, then perhaps the Syrians and Ammonites overcome Joab and Abishai. Paul does end up dead at the end of the story, by the way. Beheaded by the Roman emperor. All of that started on that dock in Miletus when he decided to actually go to Jerusalem because he appeals to Caesar. He gets thrown in prison and he spends the balance of his life incarcerated until that execution. He wasn't wrong and it wasn't easy. So before we say yes to this, before we commit ourselves to this, understand the weightiness of what we're saying. I get how, yes, I want my faith to grow, but the path to get that might be incredibly difficult. But if you're committing to this, then you're also committing to having a a motto For 2020. I mean, put this on your iPhone wallpaper, right? Make this the desktop uh, slide on your Mac. May the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. You ready to say that? Is that your commitment at the outset of, of this year? All right, I got two more in two minutes. Very quickly. Jesus gives me hope. When I think of what's really important to know and what really might give me hope, it comes down to one thing. And, and again, from the Apostle Paul, he said this in, in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that I may know him. There's a lot I can't know, but I can know him. Abraham, Job, Joab, and and Paul all had their sights on the promise of Christ and there's no other hope and they knew it. This world offers us nothing of substance 
We're going into another year filled with promises made by politicians and pundits. And, and listen, they can't guarantee you anything, but Jesus can. And our hope needs to be in him. Only Jesus gives us the hope that does not disappoint, Romans 5.5. 5. And finally, I told you that it would be quick, right? You say that is the fastest preaching point Todd has ever done. Here's the last one. Jesus tells me I'm loved. You can't hear this enough, can you? God loves you. So do a bunch of people. No matter what happens this year, nothing changes that. We can get through an awful lot in life if only we remember this one thing, that we are loved. That we are part of an uncommon community that is trying very imperfectly, trying very imperfectly to love one another and care for one another as we serve Jesus here. And so all of that to say, all five of those points, Jesus is what you need as you enter a new year, not knowing what will happen to you. Amen? All right, let me pray for us, and then the worship team's gonna come out and help us pledge that in song. Our God and Father, thank you for uh, your care for us, your care for this world, Thank you for the unbelievable offer of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I'm grateful that over the past several weeks, there have been several who have pledged their life to follow Christ and have found the forgiveness of sins and the hope that we've just been talking about. And Father, I pray that that would continue, that there would be more who don't know Christ who would find the forgiveness of their sins through him. And God, for all of us as, as believers, we would be leaning on you hard this year. Because Father, we know that there are no guarantees and, and the potential is high for difficulties and trials to consume us. And Father, we need to remember what we've heard here. God, we need to surrender ourselves completely to simple obedience in the face of not knowing and allowing you to do whatever pleases you. You have our well-being at heart anyway. You desire to give us good gifts, and you do. You've given us Jesus. So thank you. We pray in his name.